Welcome to Strange Deer, your weekly podcast about the strange but true stories behind your favorite works of fiction. Hosted by Juliana Valente and Kay Cook. Uh, that's just the way it's going to be. Like, I I don't know why I didn't bring tissues to the screening of this movie. I should have. Um, and, and now I'm stopping myself pursuant to our pre-recording conversation last week about, Kay, don't give away, you know, the, the, the milk, when you, the cow for free. I think I just ruined that metaphor. I don't even know what it is. But hi, everybody. Welcome to Strange Deer. It's Kay. Hi, this is Juliana. Once again, doing our remote on the road series. But really, this is kind of, um, this is sort of a return to, to strange summer shorts in a way like this is shorts the reshortening <laughs> maybe we shouldn't call it that but <laughs> because we're both uh we're both in the middle of kind of a crazy uh this week this is kind of like a sort of what's ambiently in our minds thing i've got sort of a structure to my segment um we're, we're just kind of gonna be like here's look inside of my brain today uh yeah. not that we don't do that every week but this week it's taken over so um Pursuant to the crazy, how are you surviving the rehearsal process, Juliana? Because I know you're wall-to-wall, in a good way, in a blissful way. I love how you put that. Blissful way. Uh, You know, the particular show that I'm in rehearsals for right now, we were asked to come to first rehearsal off-book. Wow. Which is a scary thing, and I've done it just two other times before that way. But I think from working with me, you know that, like, I... I know you do it. Joy working that way, both as director and... And given, uh, actor. given the limits of your rehearsal timeline, too, I feel like there are a few other ways you could have done that than show up off book. Yeah, this is this is a show where it's uh, basically 10 days of rehearsal, then uh, a handful of tech days, and then we open. So um, it was necessary that we come off book. <laughs> Absolutely. Understood. So, you know those kind of sloppy days, sloppy rehearsals, um, when everyone's just getting off book? Yeah, exactly. Well, we those are done. Ta-da. And right now, as far as where we are. And so now my head is in a little bit different space because to me, that's the most... Yeah, the mm. part yep. of the there aren't words for that. It's just a, it's a tight feeling of uh, um, yeah, yeah, where you can't relax, you can't you There's know no character I, work there. It's it's spitting. Yeah, I hear you. Exactly. No character yeah. work. You feel like you're being a horrible actor because uh, you're not getting tempos right because the you know you're it's just what what order do those words go in and yeah. oops that didn't come out in the correct order that feels like how i function in life but anyway yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and the restraint to like just keep going yeah. you know so um so yeah it's i'm 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 in a pretty happy place yay i'm so happy i Stop. Yeah, and I am kind of in the middle of, I was thinking about this, if about five weeks ago I had my proper vacation where I was off doing things, this is kind of my staycation weekend, uh, and it started with a conversation with my husband, Packy, about how he's like, hey, you know all those summer movies? We keep saying, okay, put that on the list of things I want to see. Like, we realized our list has gotten to be, oh, maybe about ten long, so we, we decided to be like, you know, we have Friday off, let, and yeah. most of a Saturday, let's let's see what's at the cinema. Yeah. Um, so I had... Did you actually say cinema? No. Okay. <laughs> I may, that may be the first time I've used it that way. But I realized I had a two-show day yesterday and the two-movie day yesterday, um, 
Yeah, yeah. But we uh, we were kind of like, hey, let's start chipping away at this list. And that actually started Friday night with something that's going to be my uh, my next segment. So I'm stepping away from that one. I would just say that I made a gross mistake of not bringing tissues with me to the theater Friday night. Um, I didn't wind up needing them yesterday because, I don't know, we spent most of our time uh, at Incredibles 2 and also Ant-Man and the Wasp. So it was superhero land yesterday. Uh <laughs> I saw Ant-Man and Wasp uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's a summer movie. It's a summer heist movie, and it's kind of what you want out of a summer movie. And I felt Incredibles 2 was the same way, but it also kind of blew my mind with Incredibles 2 because I went, this movie, there were 14 years between movies, like, which is unheard of in... Finding Nemo type. Sequel crazy world. Like, yeah. typically things come out, like, the next year, they're like, hey, that went well, let's make another one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> while we're, while we still have, you know, like, costumes. <laughs> but there's something to be said for coming back that long apart, because I realized what had happened in those elapsed 14 years is Marvel. So we had this great Incredibles, the first Incredibles movie happened before kind of the superhero renaissance hit, um, yeah. in which they were sort of being nostalgic, and it's set in the, people forget this, I'm like, Incredibles, that's right, it's set in the 60s, like, it, it yeah. doesn't, yeah, and I was like, first it started as like a pastiche sort of loving little thing to comic books, and then suddenly we have had now 10 years of Marvel movies making everyone go of course superhero genre it's like you know it's a thing now oh yeah right yes 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 and now we're, and so I'm and so coming back to it now i was like well first of all it's still adorable and funny and it's pixar so it's gonna make you have feels um that said the short they've paired with incredibles 2 is ah my heart um and it apparently has been very polarizing i mean no surprise, you know, Pixar shorts giving you feels, or, you know, I don't know. I know. There are a few Pixar shorts that, like, immediately pop in my head. It's like, oh, I always cry. I always cry. Or, you know, <laughs> the first ten minutes of Up, for instance. Uh, yes. Let's just have a really heartbreaking, this is how life cycles on you sort of thing, kids. Um, so, we had a fantastic superhero we filled yesterday, and today, that there's actually beyond just me going superheroes, um, I'm off to Connecticut. We're actually filming early we're filming on a Sunday this week uh, because oh, I'm going to see the U.S. Women's so National Soccer Team uh, in Hartford. So we're going to be spending the night. And, uh, yeah, so I guess that's that part's less staycation because it does involve a two-hour-ish drive into Connecticut. Um, but uh, I, I love myself some soccer and some football, so that should be a good time. Uh... <laughs> this is... Yeah, it, someday there will be a guide to Strange Deer, and it will be a subsegment of tropes, and the biggest trope will be Juliana eviscerates Kay for not understanding how looking good works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I'm like, I, like, this is what comes of me trying to look, like, natural and relaxed, and, like, all I can think about is, like, no, Packy and I joke all the time about how, or at least I, I throw this at him because we'll talk about things that girls, women are supposed to be able to do. And I was like, I'm sorry, as I was waiting at the gates to come down, you know, there were bits I forgot to pick up on, on exit. Like I didn't stick things in my tote. Like I forgot I didn't stop by the ass booth where they were, you know, handing out appropriate female butts. So I wound up with something flat. There's nothing there. Like uh, when they were talking about like the etiquette guide to how women present themselves in society, I'm have accidentally grabbed like the random athlete book instead and been like that'll work wait makeup isn't in here wait what's hair <laughs> so yeah yeah you are 
<laughs> in my mind, there's a big exit queue. It's a bunch of it, Pixar should do this. No, nope, I shouldn't actually put that out there because they'll steal the idea. But <laughs> all the babies waiting to come down to see their parents, and like the storks are waiting, and yeah, I, you know, that's a favorite. I have favorite. a very broken brain. It's fine, uh, but kind of in the vein of Kay's broken brain, or in what makes Kay tick. Um, now we're moving into. The thing that I alluded to in the opening, my Friday night, which should have been spent with a huge box of tissues, but <laughs> but mostly I just found myself awkwardly wiping my face, and like I'm like, is it weird if I do this right like, like with my leg? Like, I was totally unprepared, and in hindsight, I should have been, because um, Friday night, my husband and I went to see a great little documentary that's going around right now, uh, but before... I want to start with a little personal story, Juliana. Um, And uh, it's 1962. And a young aspiring Presbyterian minister by the name of Walter Cook enters the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And he's assigned this soft-spoken, friendly roommate, uh, a roommate who's actually taken some time off after getting his B.A. in music composition uh, down in Florida. Um, He's taken about a decade away, started a family, um, Walt finds out his new roommate has also spent this last 10 years working in television, uh, and I want to get this quote right. Uh, the, the roommate stated he hated television so much he thought there must be some way to use this fabulous instrument to nurture those who would watch and listen. Uh, now, Walt's roommate also isn't a drinker. He's not a smoker. He's in his early 30s, uh, and he's got this passion for revolutionizing the way preschool children are educated and treated. Um, he sincerely believes that you're special just by being you. Fred McFeely Rogers was my great uncle's roommate at seminary uh, in the early 60s. Uh, it's kind of one of the biggest family legends and lores. Uncle Walt, basically, you know, anybody who knew Fred Rogers personally um, says, yeah, what you saw on the screen was exactly how he was. There was no character put on. That was just that earnest wanting to connect with kids and validate them. Fred. That was who you met. And that was probably why, actually, um, Fred Rogers' parents really wanted him to go into the ministry because they thought he'd be perfect. Uh, but he, he felt like his calling wasn't quite there. Like, he was fascinated by this new medium of television, but he was also frustrated by kind of the flashbang, throw pies in people's faces, here's the next cartoon short, kids, kind of thing that was happening. And he thought it could be more. There could be more there. Um so many, certainly our generation, Juliana, but even younger and or even older now, grew up with Fred Rogers. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, as much as pop culture makes fun of it or this and that, it was formative for so many of us and very good for us in that way. Uh, the documentary going around right now is Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, it's from Focus Features and uh, directed by Morgan Neville. Uh, pursuant to it being on my summer list and I didn't get to it, for a while, it's been out since June 8th. <laughs> uh, finally got to it this Friday. It runs about an hour and a half. Um, but um, it features, it, this thing's just so incredible. It features interviews with Fred's family, his wife, Joanne, uh, his two sons, James and John. Uh, also, if you want to have your brain warped a little bit, they found pretty much as many Mr. Rogers Neighborhood cast members as, they, as are still around. So, like, David Neville, who was Mr. McFeely, Joe Negri, Handyman Negri, uh, Francois Clemens, Officer Clemens, like, the, and 
<laughs> no. Yeah, such a nostalgia ride. Just seeing these yeah. people was enough. I started tearing up first right off the bat. Uh, but then there were also like celebrity people who you didn't realize Fred Rogers had this connection to. Uh, I see you, Yo-Yo Ma, and you made me cry a lot. Uh, <laughs> just in incredible amount of influence. Now, I went back. I'm not going to Wikipedia. Michael, this isn't turning into a spit out of a Wikipedia entry, I promise. Uh, <laughs> But I, you know, as I was reviewing, I was like, you know, Juliana, we grew up with this thing on our TV. And uh, first of all, it was always welcome in my house. I would imagine, was it similar for you guys? Yeah. Yep, for sure. Uh, big, big fan. You know, my father is a minister and um, he always, he was, I remember him being the biggest Mr. Rogers fan. Um, it, my dad has a simple similar, um, demeanor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it was, it was, it did feel like the family show. Yes. Um, and I have a memory, you know, I, for some reason, when I was a uh, school age, elementary, junior high, even high school, I got strep throat every year. Mm. Um, and it was really, really bad. And I remember being a freshman in high school. Um, I was, uh, 12 or 13 and I had stayed home. I was very sick. I was on antibiotics and everything. And I could, I could, I remember looking at a bowl of soup and salting crackers that my mom had brought in. And I was like, I can't even, yeah. but she also brought in her old black and white TV that she had in her, in her room. We had one um, too. Yes. <laughs> like the rotary, um, the dials, click, 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 dials click. to get yes. the, the antenna. So yeah, it was like not hooked up to cable, yeah. black and white. And um, I put on Mr. Rogers. PBS. Oh. High schooler. And I watched, I think, two episodes in a row that day. And I remember thinking, it just dawning on me, like, what that, what that was, how that was a whole genre, and how it made me feel still. And I remember having the thoughts of, like, do I feel really comfortable and safe right now because I remember feeling comfortable and safe as a kid? Or because he actually is making me feel that way. And, and I think the conclusion I came to was like, he's, he, what he's doing is universal. This isn't, uh, in my mind, mm -hmm. the true gift that he has. And I remember that dawning on me yeah. um, as an audience member, a very ill audience member at the yeah. time. And I, I had very similar things. I mean, I was homesick a lot as a kid, not actually, Hey, within the film, Fred Rogers, there's so much, by the way, first person interview talk with him. Like they, I heard this so much available of him. Um, and he's very open and very honest as you might expect Mr. Rogers to be. Yeah. But, uh, he talked about how he was homesick and he would use his imagination, like staring at his knees under the blanket. He would imagine they were like big mountains and he'd have his, like his stuffed animals that they'd climb the mountain. Like he, he was like, you know, he was a kid who was homesick a lot. And that was, I think where a lot of us, it, I didn't know that. Yeah. because, because it was geared toward preschoolers, it was on during an hour Mm -hmm. Where once we were kindergarten age and older, we didn't really we see. see. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I always associate. That's maybe why a lot of our memories are Mr. Yep. Rogers and being homesick as mm -hmm. older children. Yeah, no. And I, uh, so, so as I went back through, because this was such an ever-present part of our childhood, I was like, you know, let me look at some of the specific details. First of all, it premiered in 1968 uh, in the Mr. Rogers form. Like I said, you've been kicking around for about 10 years. Um, doing wow, I did not realize it was that early. It was when our parents were still in high school. He finished his undergrad in music composition and then took some time away. 
His parents wanted him to go into seminary right away. And he was like, no, let me let me try some things out. You know, he's a kid in his early 20s. He's got his new music foundation under him. Um, he's like, let me just see what's out there. But um, so he was doing things like, and of course, back then, TV was live. So yeah. like if the little film they were showing broke suddenly, they had to do something to fill time. It was him and another woman hosting. So that was when he grabbed this little tiger puppet and shoved it up through the backdrop. And that was Daniel Striped Tiger. That was when Daniel came out of necessity of going, we have to fill time. <laughs> wow. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. But uh, so he started doing puppetry out of kind of a necessity, really. Um, and it became a part of kind of his formula. So the show proper premiered in 68, which, let's be clear, was a year before Sesame Street. Uh, it makes him one of the flagship shows along with all of those bases, but um, it was the beginning of PBS, back then called National Education Television, NET. Um, and it ran, the show kind of went in two waves. The initial run was from 68 to 76. Now, as performers and people who are, are used to spitting out content <laughs> weekly now, uh, put this in your head, Juliana. The inaugural season of the show, the first year, they produced 130 episodes. 130 episodes. And we think we're crazy doing one a week. Mind-blowing, huh? Really bad right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're slacking. We're slacking. And then, the well, in the following seasons, they only did 65 episodes per year. So, basically, okay. <laughs> by the time they hit 1976, uh, doing the math, that meant there were about 450 episodes in the can. So, when, when Mr. Rogers cited... Wait, the just have these all been archived? Yes. It was all on videotape. It all exists out there. And so much of it is within Won't You Be My Neighbor, this documentary. Uh, so much of it. Uh, obviously, we're not watching 450 episodes, or I would have been there through yesterday. But um, by the time he hit 1976, Fred decided he needed a little bit of a break. I can't imagine why. Um, and they started showing reruns of these 450 episodes, which, let's be clear, we're also talking about the era where the rerun was a real thing, because we're pre-VCR, so the only way you'd get to see something again would be if the network chose to rerun it. Um, so the second wave resumed in 79 and ran until 2001. And that second wave is what you and I know, Juliana. Um, okay. and at that point they were doing 30 some per year or like, I think that I'd even heard they were doing as few as 15 cause they had such a backlog at that point. Yeah. So those, uh, the old ones would run in syndication. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And, um, the other thing that happened with the second wave was that was when he started doing theme weeks. I think we, we also both remember this clearly. Like, he'd do a week on divorce. He'd do a week on bullying. He would do a week, you know, anything that kids deal with. Um, even at that young age. I think also some of the mistake that would get made in child education at the time and thoughts about preschoolers was they're too young to understand what this means. And Mr. Rogers, Fred stopped and went, you know what? No, they get it. And you yeah. need to talk to them like they have a little brain in their skull because they do. They, and they're picking up. And this is, you know, one thing that blows my mind as a mom almost daily is that the kids pick up on everything. Oh, yeah. Even stuff you don't realize you're, you think that you have a mask on. Mm -hmm. It's even, but it's even more vital in a way that you say things at that age because they completely lack context for anything. Right. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Context. So yes. what we what we used to mistakenly be like, well, they're too young. It's like, oh yes, their brain is just a puddle of clay and it will eventually congeal. That's not that's not how it goes. Uh, so he he very wisely knew that had to you know they there was a 
there was a need for that. There was a gap. Let me ask you this, since you've just seen the movie and you, you, you probably know more than, more than I do, and obviously know more than I do about this, but did he, was there any kind of formal education in child development or is he going out on instinct? There was um, a, there was an, well, as I said, his actual, his actual undergrad was done in musical composition. Like yeah. he, he was, he was going into it. Basically, I think his parents would have allowed him to be in, in that, in the arts from the standpoint of knowing he was going to be a minister, knowing that that was where he was ultimately going. Yeah. Um, but he definitely, there's a great moment. And again, it's a first person interview. The amount of archive stuff they have blows my mind because right. anything you could think to ask him, I feel like they've got it on tape. How wonderful. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a fantastic resource. And I think that's why this movie is still playing two months later and doing so almost two months later and still in the theaters. Uh, yeah. for a limited release that's unheard of. Well, I see it in a lot of like indie indie films. Yeah, oh but it's it's like everywhere. It's run a couple at a time and they're still running it. Oh, it's it's crazy. But to to your question about any formal yeah. childhood right. Like, because he's so on point with where we are today and childhood. Yeah, no, I mean, he didn't, he, no. And first of all, you want to talk about that field. There really wasn't a lot going on there. You had Benjamin Spock, you had, yeah. you know, but kind of a. But he's not quite in the Spock world. Oh, no, not at all. He, he was, he's approaching it from a very human grounded, you know, talking to people regardless of the age like the thing people would say when they were coming up to him later on was his demeanor if you were talking and being like i grew up watching your program the way he would meet your gaze and talk to you was exactly the way he would have done it with the tv when you were you know tiny like he didn't see it as i'm speaking to a small person so i need to take on my little kid voice right now no yeah. there was none of that there was none of that and he he kind of did it, I'd say, by attrition. I mean, he was definitely in on a lot of conversations, but this was a guy who majored in musical composition, who saw a hole in the game, if you will, and filled it with honest conversation. Um, and speaking of his honest conversation, the other thing this film really underlines is his activism and his, his like, yes. I mean, I think people are recently paying attention a little bit more beyond just this documentary because it has been announced that they're working on developing a real biopic uh, and it's got Tom Hanks name attached to it. Um, also recently drunk history did a segment. I, you know how much I love drunk history oh, with Colin Hanks like things in the whole world. Have you seen this one then? No, I haven't. I've been Colin, in my own. Colin Hanks as Fred Rogers. And what it does is it's talking about in 1969, we'd had PBS less than a year. Um, Mr. Rogers almost single-handedly saved PBS from being destroyed in infancy. Yes, I um, did this. Yeah, he, uh, he testified before the U.S. Senate. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty much your, kind of your classic David and Goliath situation. Um, he, he went before uh, subcommittee chair John Pastore. Pastor? Uh, look, it's another one of those things we should have pronounced before we started. Uh, <laughs> Pastor, I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> but basically, uh, Fred explained his work on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to a room of not just adults, but very crusty, cynical adults who are looking for a reason to cut this funding because the word has come down from President Nixon that we need to save money for the war. Like, we can't throw money away on this stupid public television thing anymore. Her heart is just, like, breaking. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. 
And it, even further, like, and the film underlines this, uh, before Fred, like, he wasn't the beginning of the day. There had been a lot of testimony ahead of him. So the fact that he was able to take this moment and have this communication to these guys who were cynical, exhausted, under heavy duress from the president of the United States to make this money come for building bombs and stuff. The yeah. fact that, and also they'd said, nobody's allowed to read anything off a of paper anymore. You need to talk to us. And we cut to interviewing Fred's wife, who's like, I could hear it in his voice. He was terrified, but he was used to kind of being off book and talking. And so he explained in his Fred Rogers style what his work was on PBS. Uh, he kind of re he recites the lyrics to one of his songs, um, What Do You Do When You're Mad? Um, and brings goosebumps to the room. And thanks to Mr. Rogers, PBS funding was in fact increased from $9 million to $22 million. Like that! <laughs> like I said, it's the classic David and Goliath story. Um, I, yeah. I also have goosebumps now all over. Yeah. Is <laughs> that's, that's the one everybody knows, but you know, it's also worth noting that Mr. Rogers actually testified on behalf of VCR manufacturers in 1979 uh, because there had been a uh, copyright claim from Hollywood that VCRs were infringing. This was the Betamax days. We didn't have VHS yet, but uh, basically Mr. Rogers came forward and said, I don't mind families taping my program so they can watch it later with their kids after dinner. Like, and it was actually his testimony that when this case came to the Supreme Court in 82, uh, carried the day and they said, you know what? VCRs are legal. This isn't a copyright issue. So, so he did that. He also strove really hard to portray diversity on the show. I mentioned Officer Clemens before, who was an African-American uh, police officer in the neighborhood uh, yeah. who came to uh, stop, who would stop by once in a while. And uh, Francois Clemens, the actor who portrayed Officer Clemens, um, first of all, he, he was also gay. That was something that they kept under under here. And that was that was one area where Fred was like, we can't, you know, as much as I want to push forward diversity and this and that, remember, this is 1968. You're in a world where even putting his feet in a wading pool with Officer Clemens to cool off on a hot day, Fred did this specifically, actually, in this one episode. Yes. Because yeah. there yeah. had been in the news, I think within that week even, that um, there were hotel owners who had been tossing uh, acid into their pools while African-American individuals were swimming there um, as, a, as, a, as a deterrent to keep their pools for whites only. Yeah. Um, so Fred's answer to that in his preschool show is to be like, Officer Clemens has been walking around the neighborhood and he's really tired. Let's fill up my wading pool and cool off a little bit together. Yeah. In such a basic basic way that kids get and go that's very that's very nice of mr rogers like so so it's those kind of things that just yeah pointing out that kids learn all of these things young mm -hmm. good or bad and this is going to take me down a quick little rabbit trail but indulge me uh fred rogers and swimming it was a thing his entire life um one four three what is one four three fred did have a little bit of a numerology numerology part to him one four three was first of all his, his body weight his entire adult life oh. but, which he maintained first of all that also tells you he's a beanpole because he was like close to six feet tall uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's that but uh 143 are the is the lettering of i love mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so whenever he would get on the scale after his morning swimming workout and he would see 143 on the scale he would smile because he knew everything was in a line his body was i love you 
It's just very sweet. Like, like Fred Rogers, how are you so Fred Rogers right now? <laughs> Do you remember pagers? Yes. Um, um, that would be my parents always just kind of checking in with each other or with us. Yeah. Uh, we were sometimes required to carry a pager if we were oh, by ourselves in the mall. Hey, look, it's the eighties and the nineties kids. What? Yeah. Yeah. And one, four, three meant just like, Hey, just checking in. It's, it's just sweet that I love that. And they took a moment to point that out. Fred, Fred yeah. loved his, his methodic mile swim in the pool every morning. Like, yeah. He also, and this is something that, um, especially in the earliest days, we talked about how he would do theme weeks and he would talk about these issues that mattered to kids. He would also, in a gentle way, bring in what was happening in the wider world because he knew that kids would pick up on this stuff. Uh, for instance, the week that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, he had Daniel Tiger pop up out of the clock and turn to Lady Aberlin and literally say, what's assassination mean? Oh, yeah. Huge. And explaining that. And, and, and you know, because kids will pick up on these things, you know, sure. specifically. And this was in the first week they were on the air. He did an episode on the Vietnam War. Now, yeah. now, here, here's your setup. It's the neighborhood of make-believe. King Friday has decided that change is a bad thing. So he's going to put a wall around the neighborhood. This is 1968. Yeah. And the... The inhabitants of the land of make-believe, I'm trying not to cry here too, because this, this was my first, why didn't I bring Kleenex with me? They're all wondering why change has to be such a scary thing. And, and to stop the wall, yeah. Henrietta Pussycat and X the Owl and Daniel, they send balloons with positive words on them over the wall to King Friday. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't even know oh my gosh and I mean and he continued that was week one by the way I love they cut to the cast members who were like and that was our first week on set <laughs> wow like, this is gonna be an interesting ride with this man um and that theme of kind of taking what's presently in the media and making it you know applicable for kids and, and answering their questions carried forward into the 80s with the explosion of the space shuttle challenger um and actually and this was something i did remember that the show had gone off the air in 2001 but they had fred rogers come back and film some special segments after september 11th um which he actually identifies and his wife identifies as one of the hardest things that he ever did despite all of the things he'd been through in his career september 11th was the hardest he felt like you know he didn't even know where to begin here. He's like, this is even beyond because it was at least with something like the Vietnam war, you know, it was over there. This was right here, right home. And to hear that even Mr. Rogers was overwhelmed in a weird way kind of made me feel better. I was so like, as I was watching this, Juliana, I had uh, thoughts about actor takeaway because that that's kind of become our mission statement. There, there yeah. are things in the way he communicated. Um, yeah. We talked a lot about how he was a trained musician. Um, and within the first like two minutes of this documentary, um, it struck me because I think a lot of times the music on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood gets a little bit dismissed as kind of simple or a little banal or, you know, very, very, you know, dis it's easily dismissed. But uh, within the first two minutes of the show, he's talking about how 
modulation in music is like a perfect metaphor for the changes kids go through in their lives. Like he's having these like academic <laughs> thoughts about that. And he's like, like, it's easy to go from F to G, but you want to go to F sharp. You got to make a whole lot of difficult changes. Like it's, it's just, it was very, very interesting to see that. I like um, also speaking, I sort of touched on this before, but his technique, you know, he's, I think sometimes the idea is if you, you're being told you're hosting something in your mind, you've got like this big room of people that you're talking to. He said, whenever I did every single episode of Mr. Rogers, I just pictured one kid. It was always a one-on-one -on -one thing, you know, that, that's so great. So amazing. It's like keeping that connection and that immediacy is such a challenge but do it. Um, there's also a beautiful segment about Fred's use of silence and uh, how it can foster additional conversation. Yes. Um, often he would ask a question, he'd get a response from the person, and then he'd just sit there and see if there was more. Yes. And a lot of times as he sat there, the better and the more truthful thing came out after. Like, you know, seeing what he can, what, what will come of this conversation. Yeah. Not being afraid to use that silence. Um, very famously, when he was given the Lifetime Achievement Award at the, uh, the Emmys, the Daytime yeah. Emmys in 1997, in his acceptance speech, he did the radical thing of saying to the audience, you know, a lot of people bring us to these places. Now, what I want to do is, and I'm going to time it on my watch here for one minute. I want us to all sit here and think about those special people who meant so much to us. And I'll time it and let's go. Wow. For one minute. And they, they reenact this moment in the film, too. And that was another moment that I broke down because oh. his understanding of how silence yeah. It made me think of you, actually, Juliana, because we talked about when we were talking about our actor strengths and stuff, you're like the ability to use silence and not be nervous in it. Um, and that is something that I personally struggle with, because I think you have this tendency to read into it to be like, this is a failure. I need to be saying something to keep this person constantly engaged. And he was mm -hmm. like, no, things will come out the way they're meant to come out. And so I found that to be such a powerful, you know, not just a a general statement, but also as, as an actor, as a performer, to be like using that silence. Mm -hmm. uh, and lastly, the other takeaway I got off of this was that he had his doubts. I like that they really go into, he, he journaled a lot. Kels DeVries, he was a journaler. Yeah. Um, and they found, uh, shortly after he died in 2003, um, they found a paper on, upon which he'd been writing things like, am I just fooling myself? Who am I trying to teach these kids? And like, as he's trying to sit down to write a script and having, being like, what am I supposed to say here? Like, I think we, we associate someone who was that genuine, that honest with always kind of having it together. Yes. Um, it, you know, I found that it, even, it was even more of a strong takeaway that he didn't always have the answers. Mm -hmm. yeah. He really yeah. questioned himself at times in a, in a lovely, healthy way. Um, so I can't, I can't recommend this thing enough. I mean, I knew I was going to go in and be emotionally charged. That was actually before I'd even seen it. I asked Juliana, I said, can this be what I talk about this week? Because I know I'm going to have beyond just my family connection. Um, you know, Mr. Rogers just occupies that place in so many of our hearts. And I think you walk away from this film also going, really wishing we had him now. Mm -hmm. um, because someone yeah. to that point, like, they, they actually, it, it's a little bit of a, it's not quite a, I guess not a bummer, but there's a real, okay, now I need you to go away and think about this, which is very Mr. Rogers. Um, 
his funeral was actually uh, picketed by fundamentalist groups um, in 2003 because specifically they're like, well, how can you hate Mr. Rogers? And, and it's like, we, no, but he embraced homosexuals. He, he, he didn't judge them and condemn them. You know, Fred Rogers occupies a strange place in the Presbyterian church. He was an ordained minister. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, and then we, we still refer to him as like America's pastor, right? Yeah. They never quite knew. They never quite knew what to do with Fred because he, he was, he didn't fit in a box. Yeah. He didn't want to judge anybody, and while there were there would be lifestyle things he was uncomfortable with, you know, talking about talking to Fran, uh, Francois Clemens about um, being gay and saying we can't we can't embrace that on the show at this point in time, yeah. um, but it doesn't mean that he was he wasn't actively coming out against it, which I guess nowadays, particularly with our mindset, if you're not out there spitting hate against you must be accepting of it exactly and speaking of spit and hate they take a moment to underline that within this picket line there were parents who had brought their children and they were shoving signs in these children's faces and having them you know burn in hell and these kids just look so tired and so sad and so not understanding what was happening and then i took a moment and did the math this was 2003 that was 15 years ago those kids are now in their mid-20s and you wonder where they are yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it just showed how quickly hate can take root yeah. and how much what you feed from before you think the kids are absorbing matters. Yeah. So you need, you know, we might not have Fred Rogers with new content every week, but that, you know what, it puts it on us to be there, to do that, to talk, to not find any question too dumb or dismiss it to to really sit there and have those have those conversations to the point a bunch of people brought their kids to the screening and i couldn't have been happier to see that yeah um, yeah won't you be my neighbor it's actually just past the 20 million dollar mark which is putting it on track to become the highest grossing documentary film of all time uh, uh as long as people are going to come they're going to keep showing it um it's kind of turned into an open-ended run in some places uh, it's going to be getting a Blu-ray DVD release September 4th, um, and it's going to be available. Yeah. still have DVD players? Yeah, <laughs> but it's going to be available digital download for those of you uh, come uh, slightly ahead of that. August 21st, and I'm assuming it's going to be like an iTunes-type platform. But yeah. uh, if you can't get yourself, I would, though, encourage you, if you can find a screening, to be in the room with other people, because it really does add another dimension to it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, it, you know, if life is what life's going to be, it'll be out, it'll be available for you in a little over a month. Uh. So, if you are new to our channel, Strange Deer, Kay and I, put out a new episode every week and sometimes we even put a uh, bonus material out during the week. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. So if you're watching us on YouTube, please go ahead and hit subscribe down below. Uh, or if you are on your favorite podcast app, you can subscribe to us there as well. I can't you can point follow us. <laughs> if you're just audio, I can't point to anything. <laughs> you can follow us on social media at Strange Deer Warrant. We are on Instagram, Twitter, we even have a Facebook page. Yeah, we do. And that's actually where you can see us going live on Thursday nights or Instagram, depending on what our tech situation is. But the point is, we always try to go live to say hey to you guys before the new episode drops every week. So, right. yeah, p- pop on your social media about 8.30 Eastern every week, and you might get to say hi to us in person. Ask us a question, yeah. uh, whatever you want to do. Or if you want to ask us something more personal on the side, ooh, that got 
more intense than I intended, uh, you can email us. We're at strangebuttruedeer at gmail.com. Uh, you know, if you got an episode idea, you want to give us some feedback, um, or if you're our friend Michael, you can text us directly. I'm not putting our phone numbers out there, but there's that. <laughs> So I've had a particular challenge uh, this week, and this is more of a, an issue of just really practicing what I preach. Yeah. Uh, and one of those is um, the meditative quality as an actor of being able to go through the rehearsal process um, with other actors. And so it's really been, I'm so humbled uh, in this production to be with uh, some really, really great performers. and. Um, I feel like very much the junior uh, member of the team, and it, it is one. It's a, there's a little bit of anxiety, yeah, because, oh, yeah. because they see like, please think I'm, you We're know, doing a room with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, am, am I am I allowed to play with you? <laughs> yes, oh, you know. Can I be in this pool? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah. Uh, or is this just for the big kids? Or you know, am I? You know, uh, but so what's happening is I'm this past week in particular, you know, I'm, I can be a little, uh, new agey and a little hippie when I come to it. And I, I joke all the time about, you know, the, 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 the temple of theater and, uh, I get to be around, you know, a, a great priestess of this, uh, religion, this, spiritual state but but I, I I say that with a wink um but it's funny to me because it's true yeah um that there is uh when I approach a rehearsal in this very meditative state um first of all it takes me a second to get there so I've been going into rehearsals um way early about half an hour early and thank god I can right now uh, that's you know you don't always have that luxury and just sitting in my car and doing a meditate, like a guided meditation mm -hmm. with my earphones. Um, and then going in because the challenge is once I get into the rehearsal, can I stay in character the whole time? So like yesterday was a four hour rehearsal for me with two five minute breaks. And, um, the mental stamina to stay in character for four hours, save 10 minutes. Right. Um, was really, really tough, but I have to tell you, I did it. I don't always do it, but yesterday I did it. Yeah. And when I left, it was an amazing exhilaration of like coming out right. of this really wonderful meditation and, and, um, it's fantastic. It uplifting. No, it's, it's funny. It's hard work. I had a uh, one of my, I'm saying professor, but again, with the way my program was structured at college, we were assigned a mentor actor, an, an equity uh, actor to work with. And uh, yeah, one of my really close advisors, John McGuire, uh, would routinely stay in character for the entire rehearsal period, um, which was a challenge for me. And I, I guess I sort of like young 20 year old Kay was like, oh, that's, that's so weird. But as I got older and I recognized the skill that that required and what he was doing that the quality of the performance he was getting from that. I went, Oh no, you're being a hole in this room. Kay, you shut up and you observe and you watch this <laughs> <laughs> because this is huge. So no, I, I applaud that. And I think that's 
it's amazing that you were able to do that. Yeah, it was great. And you know, like the thing is, the character I'm playing in the show is a student yeah. uh, at, at at Juilliard, so it's it's not hard to. <laughs> Weird to stay in that character, you know. I'm not doing a Lincoln. Yeah, know? right. I was like, you're not, you're not a Yeti. Uh, you're, it's not, it's not some weird out of brain thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, definitely. Like nobody could notice. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, all that to say, two takeaways um, is that for actors, never be afraid of. Um, we've talked, we talk about this all the time. Yeah, we do. And I think it's because I have students who give this to me of like the fear of not being the lead. Um, it is amazing to be cast with actors who are much better than you, mm -hmm. and maybe not even um, like the tip top of their craft, but who have just been around a little longer, just to observe them work. Uh, that is a wonderful way to sharpen your instrument, and to just really learning um, that rehearsal is a discipline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda has a hoodie that's like, rehearsal's the best part. I've always felt that way. Yeah. Um, just approaching rehearsal in a much more serious, meditative way yeah. um, is a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's a challenge. And so that's what I'm, I'm working on. I love it. I, I love it. I, yeah, I think some of my most rewarding um, theatrical experiences have been when we were able to really sit in the rehearsal process and, and feel our way through things. I've unfortunately been afforded few of those. I feel like I wind up in a lot of shows with people who are very workhorse type, you know, we're putting on a physical piece. So here's this and that. And I'm used to kind of accessing the tech half of my brain more often than not. Um, and so little gets to be in the artistic part of it. Um, so I'm a little jealous right now, <laughs> but also just incredibly, I guess, incredibly grateful too, for you talking about this because it's brought back my memories of working with John and my other mentor, Joel, these guys were 30 year professionals in the industry. I mean, like there was so much to learn, just like yes. my first play at college, I was just it was Idiot's Delight, and I was just carrying water glasses on and off as the barmaid Helga. Uh, but it really, it from day one, impressed upon me how just, yeah, being around, like you said, being around that kind of energy and that professionalism and absorbing it in any way that you can, and I love that. Right, and you know what? It's harder to do in rehearsals like uh, for me, yesterday, a blocking, it was basically a blocking rehearsal and then running chunks just to get the sheer mechanics of it all. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and on book, right? Mm -hmm. So it was an extremely technical rehearsal. And to stay zen and stay in character during a technical oh. rehearsal was extremely yeah. difficult. Yeah. But, um, but I had a scene partner who's yep. pro, uh, and it was really amazing to be inside that bubble of, I, I'm not being glib, of, of genius, of, of an art form that I really worship. <laughs> episode like this I always feel like the whole thing is what's making us strange this week but we do want to touch on this <laughs> segment really quickly um yeah this week 
I guess what's really making me kind of, I guess you'd call it strange, is I'm tying this back to where I'm about to go out to Connecticut and watch um, the United States women's national team. Because people do find it weirdly incongruous that I am a theater, actor, artsy person who is also very much with the sports. Uh, <laughs> for so many of my friends, they don't seem to co coexist. Um, but I did play... Yeah, hi, exactly. <laughs> Looking at the person who's seated to my, well, left, right, okay, you do your math on your screen. I think to you it's my left. Um... But I played soccer for about a decade uh, until I screwed up my knee. Uh, this might be a review for long-time listeners, but I played soccer for a long time. So I legitimately come to it from a place of um, I, I love this sport. Um, I never stopped loving the sport. My, my body gave out a little bit, and I didn't feel like having arthroscopic knee surgery when I was 14 to keep playing, um, funny enough. But I never lost my passion for the game, and my friends who've been through it the whole way, I actually find that, Women's sports in particular, Juliana, have a lot more in common than the art with the arts than we might initially think. Because there's definitely an attitude when you are an athlete, a female athlete on the collegiate level. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad that you play soccer. Now, what are you going to do for a real job? Like, that's a legit conversation that gets thrown at female athletes. <laughs> it, it, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, but it was when I was ta talking to girls who I used to play soccer with a long time ago, um, and we realized that was in common. I was like, dear God, what can I do to help you guys out? What is there anything I can do? She's like, we do have a pro league in this country, the National Women's Soccer League. And even just coming to the games... Uh, tweeting about it, you know, supporting our national team beyond just the year that they're competing in the World Cup. Like, you know, showing them that they are professional athletes who deserve respect, who they might not be signing million-dollar contracts. You know what? Let's be sobering for a minute. An entry-level um, salary for a professional female soccer athlete in our country, $15,000 for seven months of your life. Please try living on that. Please try yeah. living on that. Um, so yeah, I feel like I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of things we can do to support female athletes in this country. Check out even if you you don't understand this soccer thing because that's the other thing. Even to the male soccer athletes, they're like, oh, the women. Okay, well we're having a hard enough time getting soccer to catch on in this country at all. So ladies, take your place and hold on. And that's also where I started connecting. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> they train as hard as you do. I've seen women's teams beat men's teams. So um, we need to not pretend, we need to stop saying that just because y'all are more established as male athletes that you're somehow better. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be going out to see the national women's team uh, this week. We are Tonight we are playing the Australian national team, the Matildas. Um, and it's going to be a lovely time. I can't wait. It's actually being broadcast on Fox Sports 1. So um, see, they're on TV even. Bet you didn't know that. What's making you strange this week, Juliana? <laughs> okay, so you know that I, um, when I'm busy and I'm working, I, I avoid the news. I avoid, I know I'm frustrating to my friends because I'm not watching uh, a lot of TV and I'm not seeing a lot of movies. Um, and on top of that, I am not one of those people who can go to sleep with the TV on. Mm. Are you? What? There are studies that it's really bad for you to do that. Really? Well, yeah. I read I, a little. That's the most I do. Well, I, I, I seem like a rarity uh, in, in this household. Okay. I, no, I know I'm weird, too. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't have a screen in my bedroom. Yeah, well, I only want the TV on if I'm actively watching it. And if it's something that I feel is worthy of my limited screen time, whatever. That's valid. So, That's valid. 
So I, I kind of in my head divide my uh, consumption into two things. Shows that demand something of me. Okay. And, and shows that can exist on their own without me uh, being engaged. For example, things like Handmaid's Tale. Um, uh, and um, I like the show Harlots. I feel like I want to be more actively engaged, particularly with, with Handmaid's Tale. It does ask a lot of me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean. Yo, it, and, yes. It's- and I walk, I walk away with it, and there's you know just a lot of feels um, yep. happening. So when I'm in a heavy rehearsal schedule, I really avoid shows like that. Where that, that it, it pulls your bandwidth, me. yeah. Right, there's nothing wrong with the show. I just, I can't. I know that I, I can't do that to my head. Well, or if you did, you did, you wouldn't be absorbing it in the way you want to. So you'd be doing a disservice to both. It's about, it's it's diluting your focus. Yeah. And there's, That's right. I'm not going to halfway watch Handmaid's Tale. I'm not going to play it as I'm going to sleep. You know, it's okay. something that I want to be able to sit down and watch. Okay. Then there's another category of shows where I'm like, it's me. I have 30 minutes to myself. I want to put something on while I'm doing makeup or I just want to distract myself. And that's where I get like my cheesy like property brothers you're allowed and, you're freaking uh, allowed last week i was talking about how i was watching a bunch of john mulaney stand up so sometimes yeah, your yeah. brain just needs stupid laughs or whatever oh, my pleasures this yeah. summer it's so goofy it's a show on the history channel i love my history channel shows uh-huh. it's the curse of oak island and they are in i think their fifth season now um live but i've been watching on hulu so i've been watching uh-huh. Starting from season one. And I've been like binging it Uh while I'm just doing stuff around the house, you know, just something to get my head in another space. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something uh, I've been enjoying. It's these guys uh, in Canada, Mm -hmm. in Nova Scotia, looking for this like very famous um, treasure on this island called this island off the coast of Nova Scotia. So I'm watching that. That's making me strange. And then I have my other kind of like reward shows where they don't ask a lot of me, um, but they're quite enjoyable for me to watch. And that show for me right now is Glow season two. I binged season one last year. This is a Netflix show. Do you know this at all? Familiar. I have a bunch of friends who watch it. Again, talking about bandwidth. I don't have the space in my schedule at this point. Yeah, yeah. Respectable. Put this on your list. It's Mm -hmm. really great. Um, This season two is ten episodes, thirty minutes each. So it's easy Mm -hmm. to consume. Um, So many wonderful things about it. Season one was amazing performances from Betty Gilpin, who plays. a rival to Alison Brie's character. Alison Brie's more uh, somewhat the, the main character. It's very much from her point of view. Um, the show. Mark Marin is a sporting character in this cast. He has a podcast, the WTF podcast. Yeah, he does. He's a stand-up. <laughs> yep. He comes from that world. And it's been interesting to me to see his acting style evolve. And in season two, it's um, quite pared down. And I don't know if that's his choice or the actor's choice, but he's, he's delivering these... Like, very, um, I am, I describe it as plain mm-hmm. acting. There's, it's not stylized, right? Even though he himself is kind of a stylized person, he's a as a stand up, you know. Yes, so I'm, I so I getting home, you know, today's the day off. So when I got home from rehearsal yesterday around five o'clock, I was like, I'm gonna reward myself with one of our award shows. I uh, definitely didn't have space for Handmaid's Tale. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. Let um, me unwind with a heavy thinks and feels. No, that yeah, doesn't work. But I wanted to be slightly more engaged than uh, 
you know, treasure hunters. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so I've just now uh, dug into. I'm three episodes in Glow season two. Nice. Uh, I, I think Alison Brie is such a wonderful actress. Uh, I. I learned so much, and I'm actually going to go back and watch season one again uh, for some more acting tips from Alison Brie. I I think she's wonderful. Betty Gilpin is marvelous, too, and they're very different actors. It's wonderful to watch. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, and all we got to do is wrap up now so I can let you go brunch, and I can go throw my crap. Yeah, I actually want to try to leave. I want to try to finish up here in five minutes. Totally. Well, this is... The goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. How long does the goodbye take us? I mean, unless we keep talking and say, oh, wait. So thanks for watching the episode today, guys. And, uh, you know, as always, you can find us at Strange Deer on all your favorite social media platforms. Um, come say hey to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr. See, I remember Tumblr this time. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And YouTube, we are strange but true, dear. Yes, we are indeed. So until next week... Stay strange, dear. But not in a way that gets you arrested.